Welcome to the Tuesday edition of the pod. We have week seven reviews, including my more accurate and predictive adjusted scores. We have a best bet wrap up, including one of the worst beats of the season. And I'm going to put a few fan bases, either team or player fan bases on my radar and on notice. This is Unexpected Points, the NFL's number one analytics podcast. Let's get to it. Thank you for tuning in for the week seven wrap up show. As I mentioned in the intro, I'm trying out something a little bit different here where I'm going to, you know, I had my whole cancellation thing that I, I canceled, but you know, sometimes the cancellation can be premature. And I found that out last week. I'll talk when I uncanceled Dan Campbell. I'll talk about that later, how he really proved me right in the uncancellation of his prior cancellation. So now we're going to go with the tiered system here before we get to cancellation. We're going to have some uh, people who can kind of get on my radar first, then get put on notice, then go all the way to cancellation. Some people go immediately to on notice, though, and we'll, we'll have that today uh, before getting to cancellation. But I'll, I'll mention that as I'm going through this, where I got to like, embrace my inner misanthrope sometimes, my inner hater. And it's something that I don't want to do too much on Twitter because then it just becomes obnoxious and can take up my entire day. But this is a good venue for me to to air airing of grievances, you could say here on the podcast. But week seven, generally not the best week in terms of quality football. We should have known that going into it. We had many games that were 12, 13, 15, even a 20 point spread going into this week. You're going to get some great information here, though, on how to not only look at the results, many of the results expected, some not so expected, but then how to adjust those for context of what happened. And there are quite a few games here that are really different as far as what my adjusted scores are that take account of grades, that take account of success rate and downweighting outlier plays, that take account of a little bit more flukier um, plays like rushing fumbles or some of the penalties that come into play that adjust for all of that, you're really going to see a contrast between some of the results in some of these games and what my adjusted scores are. And in that way, get a little bit better idea of what happened. So then we can make better predictions on what will happen in the future. Uh, I'm not going to go chronological on what went on this weekend. I'm going to start with, I think, some of the more uh, important games, more impactful games, and then kind of go in a semi chronological order the rest of the way. But before I do that, I want to thank everyone who has purchased a PFF subscription with the promo code for this podcast, which is unexpected. Again, promo code unexpected at pff.com, 25% off any PFF subscription. Continue to do that. Shows the people upstairs, shows Chris Collinsworth and others that uh, you guys enjoy the pod here and you are supporting what I am doing. And I appreciate that so very much. All right, let's get into the first game and that I want to review, and that is the Chiefs and the Tennessee Titans. The score here, 27 to 3. This was the shocker, right? This was the shocker. The Chiefs ended up a four-point favorite. I think they were even higher than that earlier in the week. And my adjusted score, though, while still a healthy beating, definitely a healthy beating, was 36 to 20. So there's, there's two different things that come out in my adjusted score that maybe are not reflected in the final score. And the first thing is that the Kansas City offense, while bad, was not three points bad. It was not close to three points bad. And the second thing that comes out in this, 
And I think this is something where people may look at the score and they say 27-3. Well, if you know the Chiefs would have scored more, they could have kept the game close, all that sort of stuff. You know, the fact that I have the adjusted score for Tennessee being 36 points is because of the fact that they being a 99% win probability at halftime, you know, well into 95, 96 win probability in the middle of the second quarter in this game, despite being an underdog, which is accounted for. Because of that, you know, they throttled down in this game. They ran the ball with Derrick Henry a bunch. He had a ton of carries. He had, you know, 28 carries, but he only didn't even have 100 yards. So it was just a poor rushing effort when they throttled down on this. So this was a game where if Kansas City was close, Tennessee would have put up more points than, than what the 27 was. So you shouldn't look at this game and see 27-3 and be like, oh man, if Kansas City could have got some offense going, this would have been a close game. No, it, it probably would not have been a close game. This game was over basically at halftime. Um, okay, so here's where we're going to start with Kansas City. And I know that, for, before I get into too much of this, I want to say, one thing I try to do is not have as much bias, right? And that is by recognizing these kind of global macro issues with different biases that we have, whether it's recency bias, whether it's confirmation bias, all these sort of things. But you can't rely on that fully. You can't rely fully on the fact that you're just not, you can't just say, hey, just don't be biased, right? You try to be less biased than everyone else. Try to control it. But even more important sometimes than not than reducing your bias is recognizing your bias. And I recognize that I am a Patrick Mahomes stan. I have been. I've thought that he's underrated. I still think that shockingly he's underrated even as a guy who people think is the consensus number one quarterback in the NFL. Although, you know, this this week and this year, trust me, when we see some quarterback rankings, he's not going to be number one in a lot of different places because of his poor performance so far this year. So keep that in mind when I'm talking to you. I'm going to try to control it. I try to recognize it, but I am a little bit biased, if anything, towards Mahomes and this and this Chiefs offense. So the first thing to think about in this game, when we think about the offense of the Chiefs and why it wasn't really as bad as the three points that you saw here is uh, what I was mentioning earlier. The game was over so early, really. Uh, you'll see in a lot of these other games that, that I'm going to go over that they started slow, right? Three, four, five possessions would go by uh, on each side of the ball without much happening right here. So if you think about the Chiefs in this game, they started with two punts and then on the third drive, and these are these are punts where they picked up first downs on these drives too. It wasn't, they weren't three and outs. So they started with a couple of punts, and then on the third drive, already down 17-0 at this point. Mahomes might have been pressing a little bit where on the first play, he threw it into coverage. It went off of his receiver's hands, but highly contested play. The ball flipped up in the air and was intercepted. So the next time the Chiefs get the ball back, after having three drives, after having two drives that were failures, but not complete failures because of the fact that they weren't three and out. So again, punt, punt, deflected interception. That's all that's happened so far. They look up at the scoreboard the next time they get the ball and it's 24 to nothing. Okay. That means that the Titans already at that point were about 93, 94% win probability, considering the fact that the Chiefs were a favorite. Now, if you go into betting markets, I'm sure it was more like in the 80-something percent because people are, I'm talking about live betting you would have been doing during the game because we can't incorporate everything into models, right? You can't incorporate the fact that this is the Kansas City Chiefs. This is just not your normal four or five-point favorite in this game. But that's the situation they came into. It's really difficult 
to play in that situation, even if you are Patrick Mahomes in the Chiefs offense. I know that they did this a couple of years ago in the playoffs where they were down, I want to say 26 nothing against the Houston Texans and then put up, I think it was six straight touchdowns to blow them out in the other way. That doesn't happen that often. We can't expect the Chiefs to always act as if this is easy. We're going to be able to put up these points. I mean, the, the Titans in one of these drives started at their own three-yard line and then drove the ball all the way down the field for a touchdown on their second touchdown. This was a situation where people are saying Patrick Mahomes is pressing. You're down 24 nothing after three possessions. You're going to press. You're down 17 nothing after two, after two possessions. You're going to press. You're down 27 nothing at halftime. You've only touched, you only had the ball four times in the first half. You are going to press. You have to press. You should be pressing. The problem isn't so much, in my opinion, him quote-unquote pressing. It's the fact that they're not getting points out of these longer drives. Again, these are not three-and-out sort of drives here. If you look in the second half, a half where they only came away with three points the entire half, and those three points were on the first drive of the second half, their drives in the second half were 10 plays, 11 plays, 18 plays. They had another 18-play drive where Mahomes is out of the game. This was a Chad Henney drive, so I'm not counting that one. Still, they had all of these long double-digit play drives in the second half, and they only came away with three points. Some of this is because of penalties. The first two drives they had in the second half, they had two penalties on each of those drives for a total of 35 yards. The second drive, they had a couple of penalties that really came back-to-back and just killed the drive, which they ended up missing then a long field goal on that. Some of it is they're just not able to execute on third and fourth down, which is what they typically do to sustain these drives. So that's something to to keep in mind there. This is a little bit closer than you would have thought. And when it comes to the the Tennessee side of the ball, the reason that the Titans side of the ball, the reason that their offense was a lot better than you may have thought was this was a Ryan Tannehill game, the game that no one likes to talk about, which is the game where Ryan Tannehill, using play action, don't get me wrong, using play action, but Ryan Tannehill kind of puts the team on his back a little bit. He, well, I mean, he's sharing, he's kind of, it, it, maybe the team is right between the shoulders, the inside shoulders of uh, Ryan Tannehill and A.J. Brown in this game getting open. And he was the one moving down the, the ball down the field and was really unstoppable in this game. Um, if we look at the numbers here for the passing game for Tennessee overall they had a 50 okay overall in their offense they had a 50 percent success rate which is pretty good but if you dig even further into this their run success rate was only 33 percent their run EPA per play was negative 0.2 so bad and that includes a Ryan Tannehill designated run where he brought it in for a touchdown on third down but their drop back numbers were awesome they're averaging almost half a point per drop back, which was, you know, 95th, 98th percentile type of outcomes they had throwing the ball. So this was a Ryan Tannehill game. That's why they just, they didn't use that. They didn't use that extreme efficiency that they had in the second half when they were up. So this is really more like a 40 burger type of game that they were going to put on uh, the opposing defense, but did not do it. Kansas City defense was that bad in this game. This was not a game where they held their opponents to 27 points. And that's really the question going forward, I think, for the Kansas City 
team, I'm not so worried about the offense. I'm not so worried about anything going on on that side. I'm not so worried about Mahomes having to press or not. We heard some of this chatter last year before he turned things on. And then, of course, you know, didn't win in the Super Bowl. Had a poor game in the Super Bowl, but turned things on there. So you don't like to see this poor performance, but you don't get super worried about it. And it was a poor performance for Mahomes. If you look at his efficiency, his EPA per play, this was the worst game he's had in his entire career other than in the Super Bowl, although it's close to Buffalo so that he had earlier this year. So there may be a little bit of a concern if you're going to say he's been around, you know, we had 2018, 2019, 2020, and then 2021 here. So three and a half, three and a third seasons. And we've had his three worst performances all come as the last game of the last season. And then two games, two games already this season. So there are concerns. Tyreek Hill in particular, uh, he went off. He's has 80% of his production. If you look at touchdowns and yards in two games this season, and then it's, it's like an 80, 20 rule type of thing, but, but all the production came in a few games this year. So not ideal there. Uh, I mentioned Derrick Henry. He did have the passing touchdown, so I like Derrick Henry. He's you know trying to get some love from the running backs don't matter crowd and show his passing skills there. But again, he he didn't do much. Uh, fewer than 100 yards rushing, and was just in there really grinding clock between the uh, after the lead had been established by the Tennessee offense. If you look at how. Tennessee played this game. They blitzed Mahomes on six of 64 dropbacks, so less than 10%, which falls into the game plan against him now. But if you look at the five of the six were on first down. So they're not bringing, they didn't bring pressure on third down. And on third down, Mahomes, and again, this was really the problem in this game. He's normally a guy who converts way above average on third down. On third down, he was one of five for four yards. Now that four yards was actually a, a conversion. Of a, of a short four yard that they needed to pick up on third and four. Uh, he took two sacks. And again, he's normally not a guy who gets sacked that much. Two sacks on these plays, on these eight dropbacks that he had. And then one scramble where he picked up a first down uh, on the scramble. So the problem wasn't, you could say his problem was how he performed on third down, but I think it was also a problem just getting into these third downs. And, th- and that's what he has to do. I mentioned how there are multiple drives in the second half where they have 10, 11, 18 plays, and they're barely getting into field goal range on these drives that just shows you how successful they were in in stopping him down the field and i'm thinking that people are talking about mahomes pressing too much maybe he needs to press a little bit more getting the ball down the field to tyreek hill in some of these situations i mean tyreek hill is not a contested catch type of guy but you might have to take some more chances down the field rather than try to dink and dunk the way down the field I know that ideally is the way that you play against it, but you do have options who can really stretch the field and you might have to leverage those a little bit more. Uh, if you think about the, the pressure that they were able to get with only bringing four down linemen, that was a problem. Again, on these third downs, they were not blitzing, but Mahomes faced pressure on six of eight of those third downs. All of those pressures came in under three seconds. So it wasn't like he was, searching around for receivers for a long time. And the two plays where he did not face pressure were plays where he just got rid of the ball really quickly. He got rid of the ball 1.5 seconds and two seconds in those two plays. So that's why he didn't face pressure. And there's some questions I think here for guys on the offensive line. They brought in Mike Remmers at right tackle. That didn't seem to go super hot there. They brought, you know, they have Orlando Brown, which they spent a ton of, 
of draft capital, and eventually they're going to spend a ton of money on Orlando Brown there. And I wouldn't say that he's been bad this year, but the matchup of his skill set with what they really need in this offense could be a little bit off. And the reason I say that is because just look at what he's being asked to do here versus what he's being asked to do for the Ravens. I thought this was a pretty illustrative number here. So, so far this season, he already has 340 pass blocks. And a lot of these are coming out of the shotgun too, like true pass sets, right? In all of 2020, in all of last season, he had 490. So that was in a 16-game season, he had 490. And now seven games into this season, he already has 340. You know, he's, he's just having to pass block 40 plus times a game where he was more like 30 times a game before. It's just a big, big difference on just how often he's being asked and used to do that sort of thing. So we'll see. He could get better going forward. But as far as his his grading so far this year, I mean, it's not bad. He has, but his pass block um, grade is is the thing that's gone down. It's gone from a 75 down to a 65. His run blocking is still up in the 70s. It's still been good, but that pass blocking rating is what's going down. And I think that could somewhat be the issue because they were able to get pressure not only on the edge, but just on the inside, just doing things like simple stunts or having guys like Harold Landry come around the edge. And that could be an issue going forward on, on third downs. Um, one of the things that I want to mention about this particular game is there, there was another Andy Reid not going for it situation. It wasn't a huge deal, but you know, this is an analytics podcast. So we'll talk about it a little bit. And this was when they're down 27 points in the third quarter. They, it was a fourth and nine with 24 yards to go. So they decided, I mean, sorry, 24 yards from the opponent's end zone. This is the first drive of the second half. They really needed seven points here, not three points. So they kicked the field goal. It wouldn't have been a huge difference to go for it, but it's only, you know, you had a 1% chance to win versus a 2% chance to win, something like that. Not huge, but again, what's the point of kicking the field goal in this situation? The the prior play, how many times has Patrick Mahomes been able to pick up a third and nine or fourth and nine? Give him a chance to do it. You know, getting a few points is, doesn't matter that much. They're putting points on the board does not matter that much. So again, it's something where Reed's really going to have to pull out the stops in these situations. He's going to have to start doing what other coaches are doing, which is recognizing his situation, which is a defense that cannot stop anybody, and then applying a little bit more of that juice to the offensive side of the ball and not just assuming, hey, we're the Kansas City Chiefs. We are a 15-win, 14-win team. Maybe you're not. Maybe you need to think about that a little bit differently and apply the offensive lessons to juicing up that win probability. All right, next here we have the Bengals and Ravens. This was a huge game, obviously. Bengals up at top, 5-2 and two now in the AFC after beating the Ravens 41-17. to 17. The Ravens were a 6.5-point favorite this the game grade score I have here is 32 to 16. So the 16 aligns pretty well with what the Ravens did, which was a poor offensive performance. 32 is a little bit lower than what the Bengals did at 41. And the reason that's true is because it was a big play fest for the Bengals. Now, maybe they can continue doing this the entire rest of the season, but it's a little bit unsustainable when we're talking about an 82-yard touchdown for Jamar Chase, a 46-yard touchdown run for uh, Samaje Rhyme, a 30 two and 55 yard touchdown catches for CJ Uzoma and then a 21 yard touchdown run for Joe Mixon. That's a lot of long touchdowns. 
okay? But they were good. I mean, they were, they were successful in what they were doing. And the things that I liked seeing for them um, is that they were 8% over expectation for passing. I'd harped on the first couple of weeks, they were way under expectation. Maybe it was getting used to the offense. Maybe it was protecting Joe Burrow, whatever it, whatever it was. Uh, maybe it was the quality of the opponent they were playing. Now they're going over expectation passing the ball. And I really like to see that, especially they have the investment in a guy like Jamar Chase, who I'll talk about a decent amount here. Uh, the under-focused part of this game, though, is probably the Bengals' defense. Because you see the 41 points, you want to focus on the Bengals' offense, which, again, was highly reliant on these big plays, which are not necessarily super sustainable. But they did hold this Ravens' offense, an offense that has been great passing the ball, that has been very mixed running the ball. They did hold this offense down. Lamar Jackson had a 34% success rate, dropping back the pass, which is a bottom 10 percentile type of outcome. They had a 47% pressure rate. Now, some of that is invited by Lamar Jackson, but still, they were getting pressure on this. They got uh, seven expected points lost for the Ravens on sacks. So again, that Bengals defense was providing pressure, and it's really doing it not, you know, it's doing it on the back end with good coverage, but then also doing it up front with pressure. So the there are lots of third and fourth down stops. Also for this team, the Ravens were one for four on fourth down, which was a big deal there. And, you know, Lamar Jackson wasn't a good game. This is last week. He didn't really have a good game, but it didn't matter because they ran the ball so well against the Chargers and people didn't really notice. That was the one thing I said about last week that people probably wouldn't notice was the fact that Lamar Jackson actually was not that great during that game. This week, people are probably going to notice a little bit more under 50% completion percentage. Um, and if you think about rushing the ball, you look at the Ravens, you say, oh, they had 115 yards rushing. 88 of that was Lamar Jackson. Uh, okay, Burrow on the other side. So just huge eye-popping numbers based upon those long plays that we talked about. 400-plus yards, three touchdowns, uh, one interception. He only had a 71.4 grade. So again, the offensive performance maybe not quite as great as we think because some of these big plays were predicated on a lot of yards after catch and work that Chase was doing or getting very, very, very open like C.J. Uzama was on a couple of those of those touchdowns. So let's talk about Chase a little bit here. Uh, 200 receiving yards. And the weird thing is going into the draft, everyone was talking about this Penny Sewell versus Jamar Chase discussion. I'm going to separate that a little bit out, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that later on um, as part of another discussion. But I'm going to say, let's just focus on Jamar Chase. And the question was, as a guy who was under 200 pounds, who wasn't a tall guy, he was like six feet tall whether or not he was worth a top five pick. Now, I did a couple of pieces on him on in the offseason. So this is knowing what we knew then. So I did a prospect profile where I looked at all of his different metrics, including his athletic metrics, his production metrics, matched them up against all the different prospects that we've seen over the last 15, 20 years. And he was most similar to Odell Beckham Jr. So I actually even called him. He's the next Odell Beckham Jr., and he's a guy who really came out firing, just like Beckham did. He was kind of better than Beckham, honestly, in his metrics, but he was a similar guy, whereas, yeah, he's an undersized guy, great yak producer, great production profile, uh, more raw numbers in production, but Beckham had similar market shares, similar shares of that LSU offense, and he also similarly had strong competition, right? He had Jarvis Landry there, whereas... Chase had Justin Jefferson there and to a lesser degree, Terrace Marshall there. Uh, so he was, according to my model, 
a 99th percentile prospect. He was the best prospect since Amari Cooper, who went, I think, third overall, and then Julio Jones, again, another top five pick. So he was worthy of being a top five pick, re- regardless of what you think of Penny Sewell, if you think Penny Sewell was, was a better player or not. So I think the, the discussion about whether Jamar Chase was a top five pick or not, I think you can victory lap that because there were objective numbers, not just opinion-based numbers on whether that was the case. And now that is coming through. Now, do we, do we expect him to have the most receiving yards ever after seven games? Of course not. But you expect him to be successful. You expect him to be successful early with the, with the way that, that he played in college. Um, when it comes to the Penny Sewell stuff, let's not be obnoxious about, about this. You know, oh, can you believe that anyone thought that Penny Sewell should take over Jamar Chase? I mean, it's been a thing now in recent drafts of taking these tackles early. Look at the uh, 2020 draft, right, where we had a lot of tackles going earlier. You had Andrew Thomas, you had Wirfs, you had Wills, you had Mekhi Becton. You had a lot of these tackles going earlier than you did some pretty good-looking receivers in Jerry Judy and of course, CeeDee Lamb, who's, who's, who's ended up being a stud. But no one's saying like, oh, I can't believe you took Tristan Wirfs over CeeDee Lamb. Tackles are more scarce. So I could see why people would go for that. But at the same time, with the reliance on the passing game, a top, top wide receiver can be worth it. Even if you think you can find them more easily in the second and third round, which you can. But some of these guys are really locks like Jamar Chase was on this one. Uh, but let's talk about quickly the first thing now on my radar. And this is only on my radar. We're not getting to on notice. We're not, we're not getting close to cancellation, but only on my radar right now are aggrieved Bengals fans. And when I say aggrieved, I like joyous Bengals fans. I like joyous stuff. You deserve it. You've been one of the least successful franchises the last few years, you had a huge run in the playoffs, but you never really had that feeling that you probably have now with Joe Burrow. You never had that feeling with Andy Dalton, despite being a playoff team all of those years. You have a defense that's playing well. You have an offense that's playing well. You got everything going on right now. Uh, so I say kudos to you. Enjoy the celebration. But if you're going to pretend that you are aggrieved, and I'm going to throw out an example here from someone who I like a lot who I follow, who follows me, who's a reliable retweet whenever I put any positive stuff out there about the Bengals, so I appreciate that. And uh, I'm, 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 I'm going to mention a tweet by Lindsey Patterson, who has been mostly in the joyous camp. Okay? Mostly in the joyous camp. But one thing got on my radar is uh, she was saying that people were too busy talking about the Browns and Ravens in the offseason. They forgot about the Bengals and Joe Burrow. So again, she's a sports reporter for WKRQ in Cincinnati. So the reason this got on my radar and I have similar things about like, oh, you're talking about the Browns. You're talking about the Ravens so much. How come you weren't talking about the Bengals this offseason? I mean, people were talking about the Bengals, number one. And number two, we're talking about forgetting about the, uh, the Bengals. I mean, they were drafting in the top five for a reason. Joe Burrow was two, seven and one as a starter last year. We didn't forget about anything. This was a projection, right? We remembered that they were bad last year. <laughs> That's what we were doing. Now we weren't forgetting anything. And we were assuming that the progression would be more linear with them, but instead they took a big step forward. Now that doesn't mean that the next step will be a linear step forward also. And I think that's a reason to have a little bit of still caution here, where again, 
experience the joy, love the joy, don't get aggrieved, don't get ahead of yourself. And the Bengals pass this test, but they still have a very difficult schedule the rest of the way after having a very, very easy schedule before the Ravens game. So, aggrieved Bengals fans, in the, in the great words of Kendrick Lamar, sit down, stay humble. Okay, next we are going to the Washington football team at the Green Bay Packers. 24-10 Packers, Green Bay, eight, closed at 8.5, started at 10, I believe, opened at 10, moved down to 7.5, moved back to 8.5. The actual adjusted final score here, and this is the biggest adjustment here of any of them, the adjusted final score was actually Washington, one point better than the Green Bay Packers, 26-25. So again, the Packers roughly in line with 24 points versus the 25, according to my adjusted scores, but Washington way, way under with only 10 points where they should have had 26 points, according to my numbers. And yes, this was the best bet on the... Washington football team at plus eight and a half, and it goes down. Not in flames, though. I'm taking my process W here. I know I mentioned this before when I had my process W last week on the Bucks at the Eagles, that as of now, process Ws do not have any monetary value associated with them, so I'm not going to get too hyped up on them. But let me explain why this was a process W. I mean, according to my numbers, my numbers could be off. My adjusted numbers could be slightly off, but even then, eight and a half point underdogs, even if my numbers are off somewhat, and they weren't one point better, even if Green Bay was two points better, or three points better, or four points better, it still wasn't coming close to what the spread was on this game. And that's why I'm taking the process W on this while taking the actual loss on the bet. So let's go through some of the numbers here. Uh, 90th percentile success rate for the Washington football team. The Washington football team did not punt in this game at all. And when I said this game is going to be about the Packers, I focused a little bit on the offense, but I should have also focused on the defense. Was it, It's about the fact that the Packers defense is really not good right now. Without Zedaria Smith, without Jair Alexander, we'll see this Thursday uh, when they, they're probably not going to have Devontae Adams. They're going to be playing the Cardinals. This could be interesting. This could be a, you know, a little bit of a destruction of the Packers here if that defense cannot hold down Kyler Murray and the Cardinals at all because they had a really easy schedule so far this this year. And... I don't think we've ever seen like an inability to score like we saw for Washington in this game. Uh, there's a great stat here about that, that I saw from Adam Chernoff that I wanted to kind of repurpose and move around here. So on five of the Washington football team drives, they got to the 27 twice. They got to, this is the, to the Green Bay, 27 twice. They got to the 24. They got to the 12. They got to the three. They got to the one. In those five drives, they came, so five drives, all easily with an easily makeable field goal range or right on the goal line. They came away with a combined three points on those drives. They have an interception, three failed fourth downs, one from the one-yard line, one from the three-yard line, and a missed field goal. You can't get any worse than that. This was the game that they easily should have been in it if not having a chance to win this game. And I know it's Taylor Heineke. Hey, it's Taylor Heineke. I mean, Taylor Heineke doesn't cause this weird play where he dives forward into the end zone where he could have just walked into the end zone and maybe taken a little bit of a hit. Um, probably not, though, even. Where he dives forward in the end zone and they call him down because of this giving up yourself rule, so they lose that. Taylor Heineke is not responsible for the fact that when they got down to the three-yard line, 
He rolled around, he threw it to Terry McLaurin, and the ball bounced off his face mask. He should have just caught it. It was an easy catch, and then they couldn't convert on the next play. You know, he's not responsible for all these things. He's not responsible for blocked kicks. He's not responsible for all this other stuff here. Um, so, again, I don't want to be biased because I was betting on them, but I think it's clear in this one that they were a very close team, and this was not a great performance for the Packers. Rodgers was good. Rodgers did well, but this defense of the Packers was really, really, really poor. And another interesting thing about this game is if you saw some of the pregame notices for the betting world stuff uh, in the good old Vegas, the people out in the desert stuff, is that this game, again, I said it started at 10 and it moved down, right? So you would assume that that means that the public and a lot of money, for people who think this way, a lot of money is flowing in on the Washington football team to bring that down. But in fact, there were multiple tweets that went out from people who were connected to different books saying that the books had the largest liability on the Packers. They did not want the Packers to win this game. That 75, 80% of all the money was coming in on the Packers. Yet the line moved down. So how does that happen, right? It seems counterintuitive. And the reason is, and this is a big mistake that people make is, Books do not set lines unless it's in extreme circumstances. And they might have done a little bit of adjusting here because of somewhat of an extreme circumstance at the end. But they do not set lines based upon trying to get 50% of the action on each side of it. Because if they do that, smart bettors will come in and hammer the correct side if you're moving just based upon money to the correct, to the correct side. And they obviously had money from bettors who they've identified as sharp winning bettors going down on Washington in this game, and that's why they were moving it. That's why they were adjusting. They were adjusting based upon the signal that they're getting from sharp bettors, and they weren't adjusting as much against the noise they were getting from public money that was flowing in on the Packers in this game. So interesting thing to to think about. Uh, Now, going forward, uh, you know, Devontae Adams, like I mentioned, he's going to be out on Thursday night unless there's some miracle where he can not have any symptoms and test negative twice before this game. The line had moved from around three and a half, three, three and a half to six for the Cardinals, which seems like a little bit of an overreaction to me. I would have loved to have gotten the Cardinals early if I broadcast this earlier, even with, even with Devontae Adams there, because I think they're a much better team than the Packers. But uh, it's tough here at this number. I think it's a bit of an overreaction. No matter who the receiver is, I don't think he's worth two, three points. But if you think about this team, their repla- where those replacement targets are going to go, it is going to be one of the worst situations in the NFL for not having a lot of great options on where those targets are going to go. Okay, before we get to the next game, we got to get into some sponsors here. I've been uh, neglecting my, my sponsorships here. So the first thing I want to mention is DraftKings. NFL fans, hungry for a big win this weekend? DraftKings Sportsbook, official sports betting partner of the NFL, has you covered. New customers can bet just $5 on any NFL team to win their game. And if you do, you win $200 in free bets. If the sportsbook is not available in your state yet, DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports Contest. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code PFF. Bet just $5 on any NFL team to win their game and win $200 in free bets. If they win, you win with promo code PFF this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. 
Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and one wager required. $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem. Call 1-800-GAMBLER. And I also want to give a shout out to Western and Southern, whether it's football success or financial savvy, the right questions help set the stage for winning strategies. Western and Southern is teaming up with PFF's very own Chris Collinsworth to share insights that can help you get ahead on both your financial and fantasy scoreboards. Want to hear about Chris's old playing days or behind the scenes with Al on Sunday Night Football? How about a need to know for your financial future? Now you can ask either or both. And every football or financial question you ask earns you a chance to win a catered party for February's big game. Check out the Chris Collinsworth podcast and Western and Southern's Instagram for answers to the best questions each week. Submit your questions at westernandsouthern.com backslash ask Chris, and that's C-R-I-S. One more time, that is westernandsouthern.com slash ask Chris. If you're watching on YouTube, check out the link in the description below. Remember, with Western and Southern, you can rest assured on game day. All right, next game I'm going to talk about here, and I'm going to be skipping through some of these really disgusting games, uh, but they may have some interesting go-forward aspects here in the morning. So we have Panthers at Giants, 25-3 to is the final score. Carolina closed as a three-point favorite. The Panthers were a three-point favorite. My final score, not too far off from the actual score, 20-8. to So this was a whooping. Uh, even the three points wasn't that inaccurate. You'd assume three points... Like, you should have been a little bit better than that. You probably got very unlucky. They got a little unlucky, the Cardinals. Not that much, though. So let's talk about this. Uh, Bottom fifth percentile offensive performance for the Cardinals in success rate and efficiency. Ugly, ugly, ugly. But, you know, Daniel Jones wasn't that great either. It just didn't matter in this game. Last week, it mattered when Daniel Jones was not good against uh, the Rams. This week, it didn't matter that much. The defense came to play, and Sam Darnold watched is officially started. The The Panthers put him on notice by leaking some information to Joe, uh, who is it, Joe Pearson, uh, who is a beat writer there for Carolina, saying that they may be getting in on the Deshaun Watson sweepstakes. I don't want to get too much into Deshaun Watson. I, I just can't imagine any team is looking for a player at this point with 22 sexual assault accusations, 10, which may be criminal sexual assault allegations, but this just shows you, and I made a a joke tweet earlier this week that if OJ could still play, there might be buzz around him right now. And I think, you know, this is really talent matters more than anything in the NFL. And the way we react to things in the off season, it was, oh, Tua, we got to give him time. We got to give him time. He's played pretty well. He has a few games. Boom. We're already talking about getting rid of him. And now no one in the NFL wants him for some reason. The Texans and Washington and everyone are tripping over themselves to say how they don't want Tua after he was a guy you couldn't give up on in, in the offseason. It's only been a few games. Uh, Sam Darnold, I mean, geez, the flip on flop on Sam Darnold's happened all within the same season, right? He started fairly well, and it was like, oh, I think we found our guy. And then a few weeks later, you know, you're jettisoning him for a potential another quarterback. Now, what I will say about the Panthers is the way they've approached their rebuild They've been a little bit impatient. They've been wanting, they signed Robbie Anderson. They signed Teddy Bridgewater immediately, even though they were a bad, bad team that could have taken almost a, a just a learning, building, rebuilding year that time. They went out, they were in the Stafford sweepstakes. They were willing to trade away their their first round pick, supposedly, which I believe was the number eight pick overall. It could have been nine. Um, maybe not eight. I think it was eight. Overall, they were willing to trade that away. And I don't know if, 
the Lions thought they got a better deal from the Rams or Stafford wanted to go to the Rams, so they ended up doing that. Obviously, they trade the second-round pick and more stuff and say we're going to pick up the fifth-year option for Darnold. There, it's a little bit of desperation. The, the, the stank of desperation floats around the Panthers' facility a little too much for my, for my liking for a team that should be building towards something uh, that's a year or two away, still a year or two away at this point, is trying to you know, jump forward over and over and over again here. And when Darnold has these these regression games, which he's going to have, he's just you know he he had a pretty long big sample of not just being mediocre, but being the worst quarterback in the NFL when he was with the Jets. You're going to expect this to happen. You got to play through it. You can't just say after after a game, hey, we're going to run the ball every play, and then after another game, another poor game, say, hey, we're going to get rid of him for a, a sexual assaulter. You know, it, it's it's pretty crazy the flip flops that we're seeing uh, going on here. And uh, I did like seeing one thing for the Panthers. I'll give them a little bit of credit that I saw them go for it early in the game. I think it was the first drive of the game. They went for it on fourth and one uh, on their own 40-yard line where Matt Rule had been pretty poor in game. So I think they're starting to get the idea that maybe they need to juice up the offense there. Didn't really help, though, in this one. Uh, I don't have a lot to say about the Giants other than, like I said, their defense was very strong. And Daniel Jones had a little bit of a sneaky bad performance again. So... Jones is a little bit on, on the radar. I guess he's a guy where we shouldn't have expected him to continue to be like a top five type of, of passer going forward. But now we have Daniel Jones, who is falling. Oh, man, he's fallen. He's fallen all the way to 18th in his grade this season, where he was much, much higher before. And his passing, like I said, his passing grade was really, really high before. Where is he on passing grade? 17th so yeah he, he's fallen quite a bit in these last two last two games and that's something to say this is probably more like where he's going to settle in is a mid-tier quarterback is his hopeful range of uh range there for for the giants okay i mentioned Tua before let's talk about falcons and dolphins this one's interesting because of my adjusted score so it was 30 28 the falcons win on a last second field goal one and a half point favorites the Falcons settled at. I think they were two and a half when we talked at the end of last week. I was leaning a little bit towards Miami at that two and a half, but I didn't make it a, a, a bet. And it's a good thing we didn't make it a bet at that because you would have lost by half a point. Although my adjusted scores have Miami being five points better, 29-24. Uh, if you want to think about this, the adjusted scores could be a little bit off because they may not be viewing this Miami Dolphins offense as a high success rate, lower efficiency type of offense. Generally, uh, there's no big plays for, for like really, really big plays for them. Uh, they had a 60% success rate dropping back to pass for Tua. He had an 80% completion percentage in this game. But if you have an 80% completion percentage and you're only averaging 7.3 yards per attempt, that gives you an idea of how little you're stretching the field on these um, on these plays. So they had like the really, really negative plays. They had a play where I think we credit him with a turnover worthy play where Waddle moved in the middle. He didn't realize he was going to move. And he got, as he was getting hit, he threw it. It was a pick that was returned 56 yards. That was a negative 8.8 expected points EPA. That's a big one, a huge one. Six most costly play of the year by anyone. This by anyone. And all the uh, top nine plays outside of this play were all pick sixes. So it was almost like a pick six type of huge negative there and then he also had an interception where he was throwing it to Durham Smythe in the end zone 
from the 12-yard line. That was a negative 5.2 EPA, but we did not credit that with a turnover-worthy play. I'm a little bit confused on that. I guess they're saying that it was actually Smythe's fault based upon where the DB was positioned, that he was supposed to take a much uh, harder angle there and not kind of float a little bit too much towards the corner. But I don't understand this stuff, this stuff too much. But I think that was the explanation that was coming from um, Mike Renner and Steve Palazzolo and the other guys who work on, on the grading here. And that's why we did not grade that as a turnover worthy play, but still a very, very negative play. And again, those big, big negatives were one of the reasons that Miami did not score as much as you would have, would have liked. And they gave a short field to Atlanta, at least in the one circumstance in the long interception return circumstance. So like again, low upside offense for Miami. I mentioned the yards per attempt, but even from an EPA standpoint standpoint, they did not have a single play where they gained more than 2.7 expected points on any play. Uh, you're hoping to get plays that are three, four. I mean, we have, we had multiple plays that had five different plays from the Bengals that were probably four or five EPA upside types of plays. 2.7 was the best they had on any play here. Okay. On the other side of the ball, I don't think I need to tell you that Kyle Pitts was awesome, but of course he had nine targets, seven catches, 163 yards, 18.6 average depth of target. So they're really using this guy like a receiver. If I was Kyle Pitts and his manager, I would be filing for wide receiver status now in some way say make me a wide receiver and i know that he's being covered by safeties a lot so maybe he's not really getting the you know the nickel corner treatment that he should be getting when he's lining up in the slot because what he can do blocking but this is going to cost him not being a wide receiver is going to cost him so much money going forward because the franchise tag is so low on tight ends that you can just squeeze them i mean look at the money that kelsey or kittle are making versus these other wide receivers, it's not even close to what the top wide receivers make. So yeah, if I were Kyle Pitts now, I'd just be like, I refuse to go block in line. <laughs> I'm just going to light up hundred percent of the time on the outside. I remember Jimmy Graham tried to dispute that franchise tag designation way back in the day because he was out in the slot so much and he lost that dispute. So I would start working on that now if I were Kyle Pitts and his agent and uh, anyone else trying to figure out how to get this guy some more money because he deserves it the way that he is playing right now. And the trade rumors for Tua, I, I'm a little bit ambivalent about, about whether or not he's actually a good person to trade for. He has had a better grade than you might have expected. The last two weeks, he's had an 84 or higher grade, right? And that's pretty good, okay? He's had, and remember, he's only played really three games this year because he, he only had a few plays in the game that he got injured. So that's pretty good. He's 15th in our passing grading this year, so not bad. 22nd in EPA, and he might be one of these guys where he might always be like higher grading than EPA because of, again, this low upside sort of thing. So, yeah, I'm not against trading for Tua. I think he can give you something, but I'm going to be a little price sensitive on that. I don't think I would trade a first round pick for him at this point. I know you don't have to go through the development curve. That's another thing that's been mentioned. So maybe you can plop him into an offense like the Steelers next year or the Washington football team with, with a good defense. Well, although their defense stinks now, but maybe it'll regret, maybe it'll go back to being good because they have some players there or the Denver Broncos or one of these teams, you could plop them in there, but I don't know. I, I, I'm not, I wouldn't be thrilled about that. I would definitely be thinking about what the other options are on the market. And I wouldn't necessarily put Tua above a bunch of others. We don't know everything about Tua. We don't know that he's the low upside, but the problem is you have the physical characteristics when it comes to arm strength and other things like that and off platform throws and that, that, you know, you're not really, that's not going to necessarily develop going forward. So there is some real signal, I think from that sort of stuff. 
and we don't want to just discount the low upside that we've seen so far as a potential low sample size thing. And I like to see, you know, just for the rest of the season, how many big plays can we start to get? I think the hope was with a guy like Jalen Waddell that you wouldn't even need to throw the ball down the field, that you could get some run after catch with him. He's just really become a low A dot guy and he's getting touchdowns. He's working well, I think, in that type of role, but you're not getting the explosive plays for him that you were hoping for, despite the fact that I think he's leading all rookie wide receivers in catches, but he's not close to, to the yardage that you would have hoped for. I got another game I think I can go through pretty quickly. Jets at New England Patriots, 54 to 13. Bill Belichick was kind of pulling out the stops in this game to put a 50-burger on them. So, like, they could, they could have slowed down a couple times in the second half, and they were throwing bombs. They went for it on fourth and one near the end of the half when they were already up 24 to nothing. Although this is almost like a fourth and one you had to go for. So, this is Belichick, who's not going for nearly enough fourth and ones. Uh, New England was a seven-point favorite, so obviously they covered that with ease. Now, my adjusted scores, though, and again, I take some of this with a grain of salt, was 32 to 24. So a lot closer than you would have thought. The Patriots were just converting everything on third and fourth down. And, you know, that'll happen sometimes. But they were getting these big, big plays on those, on those third and fourth downs. So that's why their success rate, while high, wasn't a, wasn't a 54. It's hard to get a 54 expected score on, in any game unless you have a 100% success rate. They were in the 70s percent for their 70th percentile for their for their success rate which is good but it's, it's not going to be high enough to get that type of measure and the jets i would have never expected this i'm going to comp to the fact that i did not watch a lot of this game is that the jets had a 56 percent success rate passing the ball uh they had a fumble they had an interception they were 0 for 2 on fourth down so they had a bunch of things that didn't go right now you could probably expect some of those things not to go right for a team like this so the 24 points is probably too high on the adjusted score knowing what we know but still maybe was saying 20. It wasn't as poor of an offensive performance as you might have thought. Uh, Zach Wilson, the PCL injury, out for two to four weeks. We have Joe Flacco coming back in here. It's going to be rough for Jets fans. Jets fans are really not happy. This is the, it doesn't get much worse than, a, 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 you know, you're supposed to be building as the season is going on, and you have your highly drafted quarterback looking pretty bad, not progressing, getting injured, so you have a stalling potential for progression there and then you have the most hated team on the planet for Jets fans and for probably most fans that are not Patriots fans the Patriots stomping on you and stomping hard on you too like I said Belichick was trying to rub it in I feel like in this game uh you know props to him if he wants to do that but they actually Belichick has rubbed it in against against a lot of different teams so I think it's always interesting when he does that and then he's conservative in close games on fourth down. And then in these types of games, he's willing to take, uh, to take more risks to really destroy his opponent. All right. Um, Philly, Philadelphia Eagles at the Las Vegas Raiders, 33 to 22. The Raiders ended up being a one-point favorite. And the adjusted score here is 36 to 27. So maybe not, you know, the way people are talking about this game, I, I thought it would be more of a wipeout, not only the final score, but I thought maybe the performances would be more of a wipeout. I mean, maybe you could say there was some like garbage time-ish sort of element in the second half here for the Eagles, but you know, Jalen Hurts and the Eagles offense have not been as bad, I think, as what I'm hearing from some people. I think they're just scoring a lot at the end of games, so people are not giving as much credit for that. But in a close game, which they've been in close games where they've come back in the fourth quarter, those points count. Those plays count. 
uh, even the even a, a defense that is playing ahead of a score or two ahead isn't just giving up and allowing teams to move the ball. So I think there's maybe a little too much negativity on Hertz because it seems as if Hertz is packaged and you know they already got him wrapped up, tied a bow on him, put a stamp on him to send him out of town next year. And there aren't necessarily a lot of great quarterback options, especially not in the draft from what people are saying. And I'm going to trust draft prognosticators on this. But even throughout the league, who's going to be available? I mean, they're going to be in the Aaron Rodgers sweepstakes, but the way the rest of this team is looking right now, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, Hertz had a 70 grade, so he didn't have a great grade. But it's not like one of these games where he's in the 30s. And he had a, he had a hugely uh, you know, impactful fumble where they fumbled on a shotgun snap, which is a little bit of a weird play. So that's a very negative grade, very impactful play, but it's not necessarily a really boneheaded bad play for him. And then they had another fumble where uh, Kenneth Gainwell fumbled around midfield. So, you know, they had some bad plays go against them there. They're two most impactful plays of the game that cost them over 10 points in EPA there. Uh, and it's hard to blame the Eagles offense, I think, sometimes. This is almost like, Hertz is getting the the old Derek Carr treatment in a way because it's hard to blame the offense when the opposing quarterback completes 91% of his passes. Uh, they did get a turnover, so the defense did get a turnover, but still, 91% of his passes, uh, they only had a 30% pressure rate on Carr, and Carr was getting rid of the ball in 2.3 seconds. Things were really, really easy for him. And it, I say it reminds me of Carr in that, you know, now we're getting this, like, Carr is so great, Carr is so great. Yeah, Carr is playing well, but in the past, he's had many, many good games where they would just end up losing because the defense would be so bad. And then we kind of forgot about him because of that, because you still have to get the W. Like, I, Patrick Mahomes has played with the poor defense, but we don't forget about him because he's been getting Ws the entire time. Carr is, wasn't quite good enough to get a W with a bad defense. He is plenty good enough to get a W with a defense that's playing well, and that's why we're recognizing him now. Uh, from a game script perspective, the interesting thing here was the Eagles were 11% under expectation with their passing. They're a team that had been over expectation many weeks, which was surprising. So they flipped it around there a little bit, but then again, they were down a lot. So they didn't have to have a very high, uh, I mean, a very low pass percentage to get way under expectation. They had 90th percentile rushing success and efficiency. So it's good. I think they've, excluding the fumbles, which, <laughs> which maybe that's like saying, uh, you know, excluding a very important thing. But again, those are more random. So they have been running the ball pretty well. They can do that a decent amount. But the problem is you just can't do that when you're, a, you're giving up 30 plus points and you're allowing the team to move up and down the field so easily on the other side of the ball. And Hertz had four scrambles and eight design runs. He had four first down conversions on that. Again, I think that's something that we're probably not giving him enough credit for, for what they're doing. Uh, a very excellent third, fourth down call early in the game. Also, I want to mention for Sirianni and the Eagles. Fourth and one at their own 34 at 7-7. The game was tied 7-7 in the second quarter. He went for it. Fourth and one, and they converted, uh, barely converted on a sneak for Jalen Hurts there. So excellent. I love to see these go for it on fourth and one on your own side of the field early in the game, stealing a possession type of type of plays. Uh, and speaking of stealing possessions, let's talk about the Lions at the... LA Rams 28 to 19 close game 16 and a half point favorite were the Rams uh the Lions actually looked decent by my numbers maybe I should have recommended that as a play but I wasn't sure what was going to happen in this game the adjusted numbers are 29 22 so very close uh this was the Dan Campbell game when I talk about stealing possessions they started the game with a touchdown on a long somewhat weird uh lucky screenplay to um DeAndre Swift then onside kick then fake punt, 
then get a field goal. Uh, so it was pretty awesome how they're trying to steal possessions. I joked at one point that they were going to need 10, 15, steal 10, 15 possessions and they might have a chance to win. But so they stole all these possessions because they stole another possession later with a fake punt, but then they failed on a fourth and one. Um, they did steal a bunch of possessions and still lost the game, but they kept it very, very close. Uh, the Rams are just awful running the ball. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm really, am starting to build more and more, uh, being impressed with what Stafford and the offense is doing is they have not been able to run the ball well this game this entire year. Fifth percentile uh, rushing type of game for them, but they were great passing. Now, speaking of Stafford, this is my first official on notice. I'm, we're going straight to on notice for this one. And that is what I'm going to call the Matthew Stafford great replacement theorists. Okay, you guys are on notice. And my point is, these guys are acting like that the quote-unquote analytics people or PFF people or whoever out there was saying that Matthew Stafford is so replaceable. Oh, he's not an upgrade. He's not. Everyone was saying he's not an upgrade over Jared Goff. No one was saying he's not an upgrade. People were saying that the defense might regress. People were saying that Stafford might not even be as good as you think. No one was saying he was not an upgrade. I've seen people point to articles as evidence of said not an upgrade being being posited by PFF people. And within the actual article, it says that Matthew Stafford is an upgrade. Again, this I know this is Twitter, so I know saying someone might not be as good as you think becomes in this situation saying they're awful or saying they're not an upgrade over Jared Goff, but that's just not true. And there's also this thing of people continue dying on the Stafford is not an upgrade hill. Okay, Stafford's not doing so well in our grading. I'll give you that. He has many more touchdowns than he has big time throws. So we're seeing a lot of plays that are schemed there. We're probably not giving him enough credit there. Uh, he has, you know, some turnover worthy plays, not a ton, but he has a decent amount there. So we're probably not giving enough credit and we're giving too much credit to these guys being schemed open in a similar way to Patrick Mahomes falls into that category for us. But I publish every single week quarterback rankings, year to date quarterback rankings at pff.com. It's tweeted out multiple times. Matthew Stafford was number two last week. I think he's going to come in again at number two this week, slightly behind Tom Brady. Um, ben Baldwin's site. There's no one nerdier. There's no bigger nerd dork than Ben Baldwin, right? I'm just kidding, Ben. I, I love you. Um, he has his completion percentage over expected plus EPA metric. Stafford is number one right now. No one is hiding from the facts here, okay? His grade may be down, but I make adjustments to that, move him up to number two. Ben Baldwin's pure number basis, not grading basis, has him at number one. Let's not get crazy, guys. There is no big conspiracy theory against Matthew Stafford. I'm willing to admit that I undervalued him. Everyone's willing to admit who was who was a little bit lower on the trade that they undervalued him. But let's not start talking about he's not an upgrade, that people are dying on that hill. It's not happening. Let's come back to reality. And then we can have a discussion on that. Stafford, replacement theorists. You are on notice. Okay, before we get into a few more games here and one other big on notice for, for um, the rest of the pod, I'm going to talk about Manscaped. It's football season. You know what that means? That means it's Manscaped season. Blitzing through hairs has never been easier, and it's time for you to join the 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped. By using promo code PFF at manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping, it's three and out the window with all those other trimmers. Now go tame that wildcat offense. A lot of, a lot of puns in this one. Uh, the brand new Lawnmower 4.0 is here. 
to take your defense to the next level. This is a fourth-generation trimmer, cutting-edge ceramic blade, reduced grooming accidents. Grooming accidents sound pretty bad. Can you call out of work because of a grooming accident? I'm not quite sure. I don't think that would go over so well. Lawnmower 4.0 has 7,000 RPM motor. That sounds like a lot. It has 4,000 K LED spotlight. That also sounds like a lot. Uh, on or off, you need to you switch it on and off. You can light it up or not. You know, you can have a, a dance party in the dark with glow sticks and your LED lawnmower 4.0. Plus, it's rainproof. Set the sprinklers off. Go go run through the 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 sprinklers in the backyard while you're trimming. You can do that also. Twenty uh, percent off, free shipping with promo code PFF. Twenty percent off, free shipping at Manscaped.com. Use promo code PFF. Okay, we're going to fly through a couple of ones super fast. Uh, Houston Texans at Arizona Cardinals, 31 to 5, 20 point spread. The actual adjusted game score, very close, 32 to 7. Shockingly, there were no uh, big turnovers for the Texans in this game, and they still got killed. Well, actually, I think they might have a fumble, and they still got absolutely killed. 90 grade for Murray. Murray's up to second overall in our grading, nipping at the heels of Tom Brady. Fantastic play by Murray so far this year. And again, I'm, I really think he's going to destroy this Packers offense on Thursday, but six points is a lot. So I'm going to stay, stay away from it. I don't like to see moves like that and trail a move like that. Uh, nothing really to say about the Texans. They stink. They continue to stink. Uh, they did book a W for us a couple of weeks back against the Patriots at home, but it's really looking like fire sale type of time for everyone there. Maybe if they can unload Deshaun Watson, we can start to get an idea of going forward, but it's really just poor, poor timing for them to unload Deshaun Watson now when they can't get anything. Whereas last year, if they could have traded him, you know, could they have gotten the number one pick? Probably not. I mean, without, let's say, okay, first of all, pretending to not to minimize it, but assuming this is, you know, before the sexual assault allegations, let's assume they just never happened. Right. Um, just purely from a player standpoint, they probably could, they may could have gotten the jets pick at number two. Maybe, maybe they could have had their choice of the second the non-Trevor Lawrence quarterbacks right there at number two. So Miami at number three. It seems like Miami might have been in on that one, even with Tua, uh, before Miami made some trades there. So it's just really, really bad timing for them, and it's going to be difficult to figure out, like, where is this rebuild going? They signed 50, uh, like, mid- to low-tier free agents in the offseason. And it's just not coming together to do anything. Maybe when Terod Taylor comes back, they'll have somewhat of a chance, but we'll end up seeing. And I don't think we necessarily learned a lot about the Cardinals other than it kind of reestablished the reason that they've been so good this year is that they're not just force feeding DeAndre Hopkins on seven yard stop patterns, uh, stop routes, and a bunch of stuff that's they're just like peppering the left hand side and on the outside 15 times a game. Uh, Hopkins has suffered with lower than 20% target share so far this year. You know, he's, he's having games like this one where he only has 50 receiving yards, but guess what? They're getting to other, they're getting everyone else involved. AJ Green has been a, has been a uh, pleasant surprise. Uh, Zach Ertz got very involved in this one, despite a few little miscommunications. They're getting Rondell Moore involved, Christian Kirk involved. It just really helps to have all these different pieces. And then the double, the double headed backfield, while we don't care about running backs, I think it's really great how they split that up, uh, with Chase Edmonds and, um, James Conner, and they're able to be effective there too. So just a great, great all around. Kyler Murray's not having to run much at all. He did get squished for a safety on the goal line. So that was a little bit concerning. Probably wants to avoid that in the future. Uh, but let, let, let's avoid, I mean, on his own goal line. So let, let's avoid 
getting Murray injured because we definitely don't want to see that uh, so far this year. And uh, everything's looking good for this Thursday night. Okay, this is this is somewhat a big one. And this is again, I'm taking an L on this one for big bets for my best bets. It's the Bears at the Bucks, 38 to 3. Wow. Close at 12 points. I said 12 and a half. So that half point of closing line value you got, I'm sure you can go ahead and uh, put that one in a safe somewhere. Game grade slightly better for the Bears, 31 to 13, but still a complete and total wipeout. And, you know, I should, probably shouldn't have recommended this. I know this is a little bit of hindsight bias, but I want to get three plays in. I think I even mentioned on Friday that, like, this does have potential to go sideways quickly because of the fact that it'll be matching Justin Fields, who's been kind of protected in that offense with a low pass percentage versus a team where you can't run the ball and the problem's there. The weird thing is the Bears were able to run the ball. Khalil Herbert had 90-something yards on 13 carries. They just were not able to do anything else. Uh, it was a third percentile as far as their efficiency. First percentile is drop back offense. Uh, it's like zero. It's like the worst possible game you could have. And that brings me to my final on notice of the week. And that is I'm putting Justin Fields, the Justin Fields apologist industrial complex. You are on notice. Okay. Listen, Fields is under pressure. The Bears put him in a bad situation. Not so great offensive line and tackle play. Receivers aren't necessarily helping that much. But guess what? He stunk. Okay? That's the important point here. He stunk. And the reason you're going straight to on notice, Justin Fields, apologist, industrial complex, that we're seeing out there, it's flooding my timeline. Uh, The reason you're going straight to on notice and not just on my radar is this is very similar to what we saw in his first start where he threw up awful performance against the Browns where we tried to say like, oh yeah, but this, but this, but this, but this, guess what? How many butts do you need? But this, do you need to really just be like the worst possible performance? That's the problem. I'll give you a few, but this, but this, but this, if you're bad, I'll give you a few, but this, but this, but this, if you're really bad, but fields, this was the worst, second worst grade graded game of the season for anyone. It was the fifth worst EPA per play efficiency game of the season. And guess what? Fields also owns the third and the fourth worst in that category. That bears the Bears versus the Browns game. And then when he came in in the second half against the Bengals, he's got three of the top five worst games of this season are all Justin Fields. So yeah, I, I can give you all of these contextual sorts of of things here, but let's stop let, let's stop focusing on it so much. You get, you got to give me something on the fact that he was he was bad. You have five turnovers in this game, okay? He could have had seven turnovers in this game if everything went wrong, okay? He fumbled on another sack, so so two two strip sack fumbles, right? And I've seen people say, oh, he well, he got sacked in two seconds in two point five seconds. I mean, it's coming off of the right tackle. Guess what? You got to see that coming. I understand you're going to take a sack if it's only two or two and a half seconds, but you don't have to fumble the ball, right? He had another fumble that was recovered by his own offensive line where there was, we didn't even, we didn't even rate this as a turn worthy play, which I think is questionable, where there was a blitz, which he kind of has to see. He has, he has trouble seeing these blitzes coming in. There was a blitz coming off his blind side where he was tackled and then he fumbled. Obviously got to him very quickly, but still he fumbled on that. He had another play where his arm was hit, where I guess they're, they're saying his arm was coming forward and then it was caught by the running back. I believe it was Herbert. 
So I guess they're calling that a completion. But again, it was very, very close to either being a fumble or interception on that play. Things could have been even worse for this, right? And if you look at his numbers, he's the lowest graded passer season long, PFF grade. He is the lowest in EPA per play. And there's actually like a big gap between him and Davis Mills and Zach Wilson for being two of the lowest. Uh, This is the lowest EPA per play of any quarterback who's played at least 150 plays in the last three seasons. So, you know, you, you can make these excuses, right? You can say, oh, Justin Fields said that the coaches told him there were 12 men on the field. So then he threw the interception and that doesn't count. Well, just because the coaches tell you that 12 men on the field doesn't mean you have to airmail one right to the safety, right? I understand you're trying to make a play happen. You still could throw an a more accurate pass there, right? This reminds me a little bit of Sam Darnold truthers, although I'm not putting Justin Fields in the Sam Darnold category. I'm not saying that he's, he's, you know, he's shown such a big sample that we should be saying he's bad. I'm not even saying that he is bad. I'm just saying we don't have to go overboard with these excuses. It was the same thing with Darnold. It was like excuse after excuse after excuse. And I get it. He was in a poor situation. But if you're a decent quarterback, even if you're in a poor situation, you shouldn't be the worst quarterback in the NFL. And that's what Justin Fields has been in these games. So he's going to have to start proving more than that, even if he's in a bad situation, although he has about an average PFF run uh, pass blocking grade for his offensive line, shockingly, not in this game obviously, but overall, even if you're put in a bad situation, you got to be better than the worst quarterback in the NFL to show something. So we need something. And until we see something, let's concentrate less on the contextual excuses that we're doing to back our, how we feel about him because of how he was as a draft prospect and all the negativity that he got and trying to defend him. And let's focus on how we can get better going forward. Um, this is a really difficult game for the Bears defense to get back to an actual analysis of this game. The Bucks started on the Bears side of the field five out of their eight first drives. They started in Bears territory because of these turnovers that we we're talking about. Brady, four touchdowns, but he only had 211 yards. Everyone saw the 600th touchdown, all that stuff. Okay, grade of 76, and that's why the gap between him and Kyler Murray has shrunk a lot as far as number one and number two in pass grading. He continues to lead the NFL, though, but Kyler is creeping on him. Don't have a whole lot else to say about, about the Bucks. This was just a slam dunk type of game for them, and um, not a lot else. Uh, they have great weapons. They didn't even have Antonio Brown for this one. So if, if he's back next week, that just adds to their arsenal. And no Gronk, of course. Okay, let's get into the Sunday and Monday night football games. 32-18, the Indianapolis Colts beat the San Francisco 49ers in a monsoon. This was San Francisco three and a half point favorite. My game scores 12 to nine. So much, 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 much closer, but still a win and ding, 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 winner, winner, chicken dinner. We had this as a play for Indianapolis, but it was plus four at that time. And it was a pretty easy win here, although it was a really, really ugly game. I mean, so many, the rain, the turnovers, uh, the success rates for the two different offenses were 32% and 30%, which are really low. That's why it was a 12 to 9 uh, game grade adjusted score. Indianapolis had all the big plays and they also got all the penalties on the defensive pass interference. So if you think about their, their success rate in this game was in the third percentile. So that's how bad they were success rate, but they were in the 42nd percentile as far as their efficiency is concerned. And that's why they ended up scoring 30 points in this game. 
despite a 12-point type of offensive performance. 46th grade for Carson Wentz. He was just bad. Three turnover-worthy plays in this game after only having one the first six weeks of the season. Uh, Jonathan Taylor and Elijah Mitchell both went 18 from 107. So the running games weren't that bad in this one, other than the fact that there's, you know, Fumbalaya was going on all over the place in this. The difference between the two performances between Mitchell and Jonathan Taylor is Mitchell did it with 3.3 yards after contact. Taylor did it with 5.2 yards after contact. So it's, Taylor's really stepping up and getting in people's imagination as being one of the best running backs in the NFL. You know, uh, he, he might matter a little bit. You know, he's got uh, guys who are legit 220-4-3 speed type of guys who put up that type of production in college might matter a little bit. And that's why he was the head of, you know, the top-rated running back and all the different modeling that went on for the 2019 draft. Okay, the last game that you would have watched last night, probably the most entertaining part of that game was watching the Manning cast, watching um, Marshawn Lentz drop, I believe, my counter here. My analytics counter was three three S-bombs and one F-bomb. And Tom Brady was great on there, too. I really, what, what, what stuck out to me the most, before I get into the game here, about how Tom Brady was on that one, is you can really see the rapport with Peyton. And I'm a Peyton stan, right? Tom Brady's gone way up, you know, obviously, as far as he's played. You know, I'm, I might be even willing to concede that he's, that he's the greatest now. But the thing is, when you think about how Peyton was talking about working with, I mean, not Peyton, how Brady was talking about working with, Peyton's coaches and how he talks about what he's learned from Peyton Manning. I think people just really need to recognize the fact that Peyton Manning was the one who changed the NFL with how he played quarterback, with how he diagnosed things, with how they would check out of plays and in and out of plays at the line of scrimmage, with how they would, uh, different concepts that they would use. They, 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 he was a big part of an architect of what goes on. And he, the, the, the way the NFL offenses operate today, the biggest inflection point is Peyton Manning. Right. And even Brady's done a really, really great job doing that sort of stuff. But really, Peyton is the guy who made that inflection point. I think that's why you see the reverence that Brady has for him in a way, um, almost looking up to him in a way, despite being, you know, the quote unquote goat. So this game, uh, New Orleans at uh, Seattle Seahawks, 13-10, the Saints win. They were close at a four-point favorite, so that's uh, not so great there for anyone who bet on the Saints there. I had it as 2016, so each team was a little bit better than that poor score, although the differential was about the same, four points for my adjusted scores. You might think the Seahawks were an unlucky loser because they missed two field goals, but uh, the number still puts the Saints ahead because the Seahawks didn't really do anything offensively other than that 85-yard touchdown to Metcalf, which gets discounted a bit. It's such a big play. They had a 35% success rate versus 39% for the Saints. And the Saints also had a bunch of drives where they didn't end up with a lot, but they had these 10, 15 play drives where they just end up with field goal attempts at the end. So they were able to much more consistently move the ball down the field. Not great, but they're able to more consistently move the ball down the field. But the, the funny part was the end of the game when they had Breeze there where they're very, very critical of the quarterback play on both sides, especially Jameis when he missed an open uh, uh, tight end screen that could have won the game and some other things that were going on there. Uh, I think people might be a little bit low on the Saints because this is one of these games where everyone was watching them and says, These, this team stinks. Why are we even talking about them as a potential playoff team? So that could lead to some value on them going forward because I have a feeling my numbers are going to be a little bit high on them as they kind of always are uh, going forward. And it'll be something to, to, to peep in on as they are playing the Bucks next week. So that's a really interesting, interesting game. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in. Again, rate, review the pod. 
uh, leave comments on YouTube. I try to dig in there and go ahead and answer people. Use the unexpected promo code at PFF for 25% off. Otherwise, I'll be talking at you later this week. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you.